Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Today we're very privileged to once again have Anthony Reese as our guest, who is now the police chief of Union Township here in the greater Cincinnati area. This is the fourth time that we've done a podcast that goes back to my days at Inside United and now here twice on The Cubic Report. So welcome, Anthony, to our podcast. Thank you, Vic. Thanks for having me. Well, we're just always grateful to have you because, first of all, you're a wellspring of knowledge and, and community information, and also you're very articulate and you love to speak, so I'm very grateful <laughs> that you have. <laughs> so you're saying I'm a talker. <laughs> uh, you are a talker. That's the kind of people I like. I don't have to squeeze things out of them. Gotcha. I'm just very grateful that you can speak to us. This way. But anyway, what's happened in the past uh, year, actually since March of this year, is Anthony Reese, who we've spoken to before, has now become the police chief of Union Township. And he is a veteran police officer with 25 years experience serving all with the Union Township Police Department. So it's, he's through the department and now has become the chief. He has served as a police officer, investigator, patrol sergeant, as well as lieutenant of operations prior to being promoted to chief in March of 2023. My wife, Bev, and I were present for his induction ceremony that was quite moving. We were touched by seeing his entire family brought up to the front for the induction. And many people packed the hall. In fact, there was standing room only. And just we were very touched by having somebody who was a friend, somebody who was a neighbor uh, being promoted to this. We have become acquainted through the Rotary Club in our regular meetings, and that's how uh, we have gotten to know each other. Uh, Anthony, besides being police chief, has been very active in Rotary, and he's managed our largest fundraiser of the year, which is our golf outing, where we raise considerable funds to help with various community programs. He's also done other things like a shoe drive and who knows other things that we haven't known, but he's just a very, very normal serving person, as well as a person who is well respected in the community. So what do I know about Union Township? Not really that much, even though we live here just a few blocks apart, as far as all the greater details. But Anthony is responsible for the protection of 50,000 people here in this area. Union Township is 29.2 square miles, and uh, that's kind of his area. He lives a few blocks away, I often see him jogging through our area. So I'm sure that you'll really enjoy hearing from him today. So Anthony, please tell us about your new role as police chief. Uh, what are some of the biggest realities facing you as the person responsible for the protection of 50,000 people? Well, it's been a whirlwind uh, last six months for me, Vic, as you can, ex as you can probably understand. And, you know, I hearken back to the night I was promoted. And uh, again, thank you for being there. It was great seeing my Rotary friends and and a lot of good people. And, and, and it meant a lot to me that our department, a lot of our officers were there supporting me. That that meant the most to me. But it's been a whirlwind six months. Um, and I, I remember back to that night, our old chief, uh, Scott Gavigli, who retired, presented me with his Eagles. And he told me, he said, kind of whispered to me after I was promoted, he said, a lot of responsibility. And to echo what your words, he literally said to me, uh, you're responsible for the safety and the well-being of 50,000 people in this in this township. Mm -hmm. and I know you'll do well with that. And 
when I thought I got <laughs> told him, I kind of, I was like, wow, <laughs> the, the, those shoulders just got a lot heavier. Um, I guess I, I understood that, but I guess I never really thought of it in those terms. So that is something that I have taken very serious in the last six months. And I've tried to really be aware of quality of life issues in the township. In other words, when we get an email from a resident saying they're dealing with somebody in the neighborhood that they believe is dangerous or, you know, whatever issues they're dealing with, no matter how minor I might think they are, they're important to the resident. And at the end of the day, they should be important to me. So, you know, that is a responsibility that I carry every day and I take it very serious. And I try to instill that in the men and women of the department to keep that in the forefront when they're working is the, what are the concerns of our residents? You know, we're not a sheriff's office. We're not a municipality. We're a township. And mm-hmm. we rely on the township residents basically endorsing us as a police department. In other words, our township does not have to have a police department. You know, they can contract with the sheriff's office hmm. if they want to. You know, the police department is a luxury that they vote for with levies and they have decided they want a police department. So, you know, we serve at, the, at, at their will and at their whim. And, um, you know, I try to keep that in the back of my mind at all times. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very, very interesting. Mentally, did you see something unexpected happen when you said, when you were told that you're responsible for 50,000 people? The reason I say that is that I was promoted at one time to be president of, of our church. Mm-hmm. And I had served many positions before that. Operation manager, pastor, your coordinator, senior pastor, all, all, all this stuff all these other positions. But there seemed to be something that was different about being at the very top position yeah. because then you are really responsible and you're responsible to hear different things from different people. Uh, you're not there just a buddy to a few, but you have to really consider people that you are very close to and some people that you're not very close to, yeah. <laughs> people who are even belligerent. Yeah, the buck stops with me. And one of the things I've tried to do as a lieutenant, as the operations lieutenant, I was very, very busy. But I was really still in a support role along with the other lieutenants supporting the chief. Now, you know, I'm I'm seeing things from the other side. I have a great command staff. I have three lieutenants that absolutely work their butts off every day, mm-hmm. not only for me, but for the people of the township. And it makes my job easier. But the buck stops with me. And what I've tried to do, one of the goals I've set is to make myself more um, accessible, accountable to people. Um you know, in years past, and this is no knock on the way we've done things in the past or prior chiefs, but, you know, there there was kind of a pecking order you had to go through to get to the chief, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in some ways it needs to be like that. In other words, if you have a problem, the first line supervisors should try to solve it. And if they can't, then it goes to the lieutenant and the lieutenant's not doing his job, then it gets to my level. But I've tried to make myself more accessible to people by phone, by email. If you have a, you know, a concern or if you even want five minutes with the chief, mm-hmm. you know, I'll give that to you. Obviously, depending on what it is, not everything, you know, I, there are some things out there that just really shouldn't get to, to, to my level of attention. But if a resident feels it's important to talk to the chief, I try to make myself accessible. Mm-hmm. And I try to be more visible. Um, again, no knock on past chiefs. It's just different styles. I try to make myself more visible in the community. I'm a little more involved in, in community outreach. Uh, I recently took a position on the Claremont County Mental Health Board because mm-hmm. I believe mental health, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in the podcast, yeah. because I believe mental health is an issue, a growing issue in law enforcement. So I took a position on the board so I can affect some change there. I really felt they needed a law enforcement perspective on that board. And I was asked to be on that board, and I wholeheartedly you know, embraced that. 
Uh, and then there's my, you know, uh, my outreach that I do with Rotary with you, which I'm going to continue doing that. Mm -hmm. So I try to be more visible um, at, you know, if a new township business is opening, you know, I, I have an affiliation with the chamber. I try to be an ambassador with Claremont County Chamber of Commerce. So I try to be there for new businesses opening just to say, hey, I'm the chief of police. You've got my full support. If there's anything we can do, you know, obviously within our our framework, you know, what's what's, you know pertinent to the police department we're there for you so i try to be more visible and more available to the public mm -hmm. well you certainly have and uh, i noticed that i've had to write a few emails to you you know just regarding the golf tournament or just a, and the responses came back bing right away yeah. that that was that was uh, that's so great. i don't forget <laughs> i don't get back to you right away i might forget <laughs> but i just know that you've been just very very attentive and responsible to people I of, of, all, of, of all kinds. I try to be. You, you were mentioning, this is interesting about your being on the mental health uh, board because you said that you would like to talk about mental health. And I, I know from um, other contacts about the fact that mental health has declined in the last several years uh, in, in different ways with hopelessness, suicide, and that type of thing, uh, with COVID and, and beyond. And I'm sure that that is becoming something that's an issue here and, and i was just uh you know what i asked you for topics to talk about you brought that up right away about mental health can you tell tell us more mental health it's an issue that's always been there and i don't know why it's more in the forefront in the last 10 years in law enforcement but it's really been a a, a focal point for training uh, de-escalation training because we're dealing with so many people out there on the road out on the street and in the public anymore that either are dealing with mental health issues and taking their medicine, but they're, they're still having problems or not taking their medicine because they, either they refuse to, or those resources aren't available to them. They don't, they don't have access to, to mental health could maybe because they're homeless mental health care. So there's a lot of people out there like that. And there's two things that I worry about. Okay. First and foremost, I don't want our officers to hurt somebody out there uh, who's suffering from mental illness and maybe sees officers a threat. And, you know, obviously the officers, first and foremost, their goal is to go home safe at the end of the night. So there's got to be this, this understanding and education on our officers part on how to deal with these people without uh, more with their voice and, and, and understanding and empathy than with maybe force. Mm -hmm. Not that our guys do that a lot, but the, again, the last thing I want to do is use force to arrest somebody because they're resisting, not because they have no respect for the police or because they're a bad person, but because they're just suffering from mental illness and they, mm -hmm. maybe they don't know any better. So that number one, that's big to me. I don't want to hurt anybody, you know, out there um, from a lack of understanding or training on our point. The flip side of that is I don't want our officers to get hurt. And I, I think maybe I've shared this story with you before. One of my biggest fears is that, you know, it's it's a summer night. It's two in the morning. One of our officers is driving down Ohio Pike. He sees somebody walking on the side of the road, uh, maybe walking out from behind a business, which is in its nature suspicious. And the officer goes out with him and, you know, just to make sure he's safe. He doesn't need a ride. He's not homeless. He's not up to no good. And without any knowledge of our officer, maybe he's dealing, that officer through no knowledge of his own is dealing with somebody that's really suffering from a mental problem. And maybe he sees that officer as a threat or he doesn't perceive that that's a police officer. Maybe that, 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 that's just some existential threat and he pulls a knife out or whatever and he hurts the mm -hmm. officer. Before the officer even knows what's going on, 
because he's dealing with this mental person that's dealing with a crisis and the officer, God forbid, gets, gets hurt or gets killed. That scares me a lot mm-hmm. because the criminals are predictable. We know when we're responding to a domestic violence call or a, a wanted felon, we know what to expect there and mm-hmm. we're prepared for that. But unfortunately, we just don't know when we go out with somebody what they're dealing with. And again, don't want my people to get hurt. And I certainly don't want to hurt them because from a lack of understanding or training. So we're really focusing on training, how to deal with the mental health, mental, mentally ill population, um, de-escalation. Uh, we, we have CIT training we send our officers to, which is crisis intervention training, how to deal with these people in moments of crisis. So that's been a big it, we've been working on that for years, but it's been a big goal of mine as the chief to really reinforce that with our officers. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned about uh, mental health, uh, making sure that people are taking their medicine, you know, that uh, all, all these uh, preventative uh, things are, are, are done. But can you give us more insight as to why the decline in mental health, if we could call it the decline in mental health or the many more instances of behavior that is really unsocial, has come about. And as you look back and say, hey, what can we do about this rather than just deal with it by preventative, by treating it medically? How can we be proactive? Right, right. That's instead of reactive. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And I wish I had more answers. And I wish I understood the reason for the growing I- issue with mental, mental illness and mental health. And, you know, in layman's terms, I'm not a professional in that aspect. But if I had to guess... As a, as a world, in the world, we're dealing with a lot of stuff right now. We've been dealing with COVID and all the issues that come with that, the stress, the illness, uh, the the uh, the unemployment. Uh, and then, you know, we're dealing with all the stress that's going on in the world. There's, there, the you know, there's war going on. There's the economy. There's the threat of nuclear war. And, you know, I don't want to get too global, but all this stuff hits home in one way or another mm-hmm. with, with people. And I don't know if maybe that's led to more drug use, more alcohol use, um, exacerbating mental illness. So I just think there's a lot. And then there's, there's, you know, I'm just not a big fan of, in a lot of ways, of social media. Because I think social media, it has its purpose and I engage in it a little bit. But I also think that it brings on a lot of stress in the community. And it brings on a lot of, of, of mental health type problems, especially with teenagers and, and high schoolers. Um, and I just think... All these factors come into play with the mental, the, the mentally ill population. I really do. You mentioned about, uh, I wanted to maybe cover one of those things about social media, because we talked about it a lot before, mm-hmm. you know, in, in our, or, or we talked about it before in a previous podcast. And you talked about how it makes people feel jealous, envious, uh, angry at others, seeing uh, different displays from, from friends. I'm actually having a roundtable discussion with teens this coming weekend <laughs> or uh, Sunday, and uh, we're having a church festival here. We call it the Feast of Tabernacles at the Holiday Inn for mm-hmm. seven days. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll be there. And one of my jobs is to work with uh, the young people and to have um, a, they wanted to have a Bible study, but I wanted to call it something where I wanted to hear from them. I want to hear how they use social media and just how they react to it, what they see as good and bad in it, and also how they could make it better. Mm-hmm. But I know that we had talked before uh, about uh, uh, so social media being something that you were very, I'm not sure about the word suspicious of, but just looking as something which does not always produce good in people. 
Yeah, and we deal with a lot of that too. And and some of the some of it we can do something about if it's a direct threat, but a lot made over social media from one person to another. But a lot of it is just harassing type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to cast a, a pall over over social media. I'm not I'm not saying everybody uses it in this form or fashion. But the bottom line is, unfortunately, it's a way to get to people. And unfortunately, a lot of people use it in that manner to, mm-hmm. to negatively get to other people. And you just don't know what type of trauma or effect that has on the person that you're directing it to on social media and how they'll react. You know, will they react? You know, retaliatory against you. Will they take it out on a, on on a loved one that they live with? Will they resort to drug or alcohol use? It's just a giant. You know, it, it's just a. It, it all kind of falls into negatively mm-hmm. impacting people in a lot of ways. Well, people when they talk to each other one on one, they have a certain level of civility. But when you can send an email, yeah, <laughs> uh, there are times that you can get more direct, abrupt, rude. In fact, there was one employee one time I said, please don't send any more memos <laughs> until I can yeah. clean them up because, you know, you hurt people. You know, you, you, you do. Hurt. We call them keyboard warriors, you know, they're, <laughs> uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And yeah, it goes on. And it just doesn't go on at the high school and at the teenage level. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, it goes on in politics. It goes on in community. It, you know, it just... So it's the world we live in right now. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there are repercussions with a lot of this stuff. And usually they're negative. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just very interesting about the proactive work that you're doing in mental health, because that is one area where I am interested in myself because of seeing the statistics of what's happened uh, actually with COVID. And like you said, with war and just everything that's out there. And I don't think that the next year's election (laughs) with what is going to be involved politically both ways is really bringing that much more comfort. Now, one of I agree with you. One of the things that we're working on uh, at the at the Claremont County Mental Health Board le- level is working on the the possibility of having a crisis reception center. And what that is is one of the issues that we're having right now. And and is when we when we're dealing with somebody in a in a in a in a mental health crisis. Okay. And, you know, we have criteria that we have to meet. Are they not taking care of themselves? Are they a threat to themselves or to others? Then there's the potential that we can take them up to the local hospital, which for us would be Claremont Mercy and put them under what we call recommend that they be put under a 72 hour hold. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the hot, we take them to the hospital. And then, you know, at that point they're evaluated by a doctor and the doctor decides, okay, is there a need to keep them on this hold as the, as the police department recommended, or can we release them after, you know, some, some brief counseling? I'm, I'm not sure to a T how the hospital does it, but in a, a lot of times these people are released back out to the, to the public. Okay. Now this is, I'm not knocking at all Claremont Mercy Hospital because we take a lot of people up there and we're one police department and, and, and maybe they, when the professionals, they're professionals, maybe they decide, okay, well, they don't need to be here for 72 hours. But what we need is a happy medium. And I think a crisis reception center is a way of if our officers are dealing with somebody out in the field that is suffering, okay, but maybe they don't necessarily need to be taken to the hospital where they're, you know, for lack of a better term, locked up for 72 hours, mm-hmm. not, not in jail, but <clears throat> kept and set for 72 hours. Because a lot of them know that if I get taken up to the hospital, I may have to stay there for three days. Mm-hmm. And they don't feel that they need that or they don't, they've done that before and they don't feel it's, it's done any good for them. So that crisis reception center is a voluntary thing. 
Mm-hmm. And we can offer that as a resource if we're out with these people in the field. Hey, can we take you up to the crisis receiving center? There's counselors up there that'll talk to you. You don't have to stay. We're not taking you up there and you know locking the door and throwing away the key. You're free to leave at any time. But there's people up there that can talk to you in a one-on-one and a more comfortable level. Would you be willing to do that? And the goal is that the people will say, yes, I need somebody to talk to. I am willing to do that. So that's something we're looking at. But it, like anything that, you know, there's funds that are needed to do that. And some of those funds would come from the state. And then, you know, we would have to look mm-hmm. elsewhere for, for some funds as well. So that is an idea right now, an idea in theory that we're looking at. Do you have any kind of volunteer system set up or would this be something that would be funded? It would be something that would have to be funded. So mm-hmm. not only are you looking at a build or or taking an existing building and maybe retrofitting it, but you're also looking at staffing it. So there, there, there's a lot of expenses that come that way. Fortunately for us, there's a lot of money out there and there's funding and there's grant opportunities. But like anything that you build or create, you have to look down the road and keep, because you don't want to build it and then 10 years from now, you can't finance it or fund it anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you can't you know, outfit it or equip it or staff it. Because it's all for naught at that point. So we have to look at the long-term ramifications. Can this thing sustain sustainability mm-hmm. on this? I think it'd be a great thing for the community. It's probably going to be multi-county if, if we do it. And again, I don't know that this is going to happen. It's in the very early stages. But you know, you're know, you asking me about things that we were trying to do. And mm-hmm. I think this is a very positive step mm-hmm. in the right direction if we can get it to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in our church, we have um, the director of mental health if, if that's what it's called, for the Hamilton County prison system. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, Dr. Roy Fouch, and he does a, a lot of uh, work with that. He's a member of our church. He's a deacon, and and uh, I've done several, three or four podcasts uh, with him, but I know that he's very, very personally attached to that, and we have a volunteer organization that we are have people who are professionals that will just listen to somebody and then refer them to other other people. But this is interesting that you yeah. have taken a responsible view of it instead of saying that, well, they're crazy or, you know, we, we just don't deal with that or we turn our head uh, from it, but that we want to do something. Yeah. And ultimately, it's in our best interest as a police department to be proactive in this regard because we're dealing with these people every day. You know, I just was having a conversation with my wife the other night and I get our shift pass alongs. We have first, second, third shift. I read the shift pass alongs and every shift, it seems like we're dealing with somebody suffering from mental illness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's jail's not where they need to be. They need help, but we can't give them that help. You know, we're, we're police officers. That's not our, you know, really our responsibility or our capability. We're not mm-hmm. trained in that regard. Um, but we're their first point of contact out in the field sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to, our guys have to be trained to at least know how to mitigate, Mm -hmm. mitigate these issues and get them somewhere where we can get them some help. I know that when I worked in Minnesota, we had, uh, you know, as pastor, we, we have dealt with people too, that had to be institutionalized, let's say for being violent, but then the, the funding would run out. They'd have to be released. Scary. It was scary. Yeah. Because the director of one of the clinics called me and said that, uh, uh, Mr. Kubik, <laughs> the so-and-so uh, said that he wanted to kill you. <laughs> Just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if I had a nickel for every time I was threatened, Vic, I'd, I wouldn't have to work anymore. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting, interesting to know. Nothing ever happened, but I do know that he was uh, a person that uh, there was difficulties there. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. 
So you, you connected um, mental health with homelessness. You, you used those two words in the same sentence. That was interesting to me. When I think of Claremont County, I don't think of downtown LA or San Francisco or Seattle or, or Portland. Um, what is the homeless situation here? Yeah, it's it's not at the level, I, I'm sure. I can't speak positively about this because I've never been to a lot of those cities, <laughs> but I, can, I think I'm confident in saying it's not at the level that it would be in a lot of urban areas. Mm-hmm. But like any area, we are dealing with it. And I think the homelessness can breed mental health problems because let's face it, if you're homeless, that's, that's a crisis in and of itself. And how do you handle being homeless? And I, I'm sure it affects people's mental well-being. And we are dealing with that. You know, we, we get it on a level of we find a lot of homeless camps, usually out in the woods or in an abandoned area, Here a blighted area. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could leave, walk out of your house, Vic, and within three or four miles, I could probably take you to two or three of these homeless camps. Well, behind our house there, there's a whole building development taking place. Yeah. But my wife and I go walking back there. We saw people camping out there. We were just concerned, who are these people? What are they doing? Well, and, you know, there's a good chance that maybe that's you've mm-hmm. kind of stumbled across a homeless mm-hmm. camp. And a lot of these people just, you know, they don't have either they don't have a place to stay. They don't have um, they don't have the financial means to rent or they don't they're not stable enough to to be able to do, you know, fill out an application successfully for an apartment, or maybe they're living with a loved one that's kicked them out because they just, you know, don't want to deal with them or the mm-hmm. issues that, you know, they create anymore. So all these things come together and, and, and create the homeless problem. And, you know, any port in a storm, you know, is what I like to say that if they can find a canvas or a tent and in the summer months, it's worse because let's face it, you know, you can be outside in the elements in the summer months and be okay. You know, the winter is what we worry about because, you know, it's obviously it's a lot mm-hmm. more harsher reality to live outside in the winter. But, you know, we see it in the winter, too. And there's just as a police department, you know, we don't have a lot of resources available to us. Uh, the homeless shelter out near Claremont Mercy Hospital, Saul's, you know, as you probably are well aware, closed a year or so ago. So we don't have a homeless shelter in the county that we have access to anymore. So it's really just finding a way to displace these people. Everybody needs a roof over their heads, but becomes a news a public nuisance, or it's on somebody's property. You know, we have to send them packing. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. anyway, I found that to be very interesting that you mentioned uh, homelessness. One thing I did mention that you commented on it's not an issue here, but it's so much big in the news about the immigration from you know across the Mexican border, and uh, of course that's big news all the time. You know, uh, do we have anything that you deal with here as resettling people? We deal with a lot of uh, different ethnic ethnic populations. You know, we have a Hispanic population. We used to really have a, a large Russian population. Mm. Um, we deal with them. It's hard to say when we come across them whether or not they're illegal, so to mm-hmm. speak, or whether or not they're an illegal immigrant or whether or not they have their green card. Um, but we do come across them. And unfortunately, from time to time, we have them. We have situations where they're involved in violent crime. And if they are involved in a violent crime, we'll usually reach out to immigration. And if it's a, a bad enough crime, one, you typically have a crime of violence. Sometimes they deport them. Sometimes they don't. But it's really just a matter of dealing with them out in the public and, and some of the different problems they create, whether it's, you know, alcohol related or domestic violence related or God forbid, you know, we just had a, a gentleman, for lack of a better word, sentenced the other day on a rape that we, we handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was raping his stepdaughter. He was Hispanic. Uh, mm-hmm. Daughter, stepdaughter was Hispanic. And 
we were able to actually catch up to him and he had his, you know, he had his uh, papers ready. He was trying to get back into Honduras from the United mm-hmm. States. So he was going to you know, flee the country. So again, I, I can't speak for sure whether or not he was an illegal immigrant, but you know, if I had mm-hmm. to guess, I'd say he probably was seeing as he's trying to flee the country. Uh, he actually just got sentenced the other day, a pretty hefty sentence. Uh, Will he stay here? Found now? guilty and sentenced. Yeah. yeah. He'll mm-hmm. go to jail here, go to prison here. So short term, short way to answer your question is, yeah, we're dealing, I think we are dealing with an immigration issue, not nearly as prevalent, prevalent, obviously, as it is down near the border. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just so many criminals moving nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, we had an aggravated robbery of, a, of an ATM down on Ohio Pike, and it was uh, three African-Americans that had come up from Texas. And we're seeing a lot more of that. We're seeing a lot of these people involved in thefts, scams robberies, burglaries, and they're in rental cars from other states. And they're not the rental cars from one state. These people actually live in another state. And it's it's like these traveling bands of criminals there. And I think they do this because they don't think they're going to get caught mm-hmm. because they immediately commit the crime and then they flee the area. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for them, in some of these latest cases, you know, our detectives are pretty darn good. I'm pretty <laughs> proud of them. And, you know, we'll chase them. We chased these three right down to Texas and caught up with them. And wow. two of them are locked up in the Claremont County Jail right now. The third one is uh, under indictment. He just hasn't been picked up yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, these traveling bands of criminals from all over the Southwest area, just uh, really starting to see a lot of an uptick in that in this area. Mm-hmm. You know, you see our neighborhood, you know, where, where we live. Uh, I have people from Africa, you know, some of our leaders come and stay with us. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely astounded that we can <laughs> be so wide open because most homes there are like prisons. Under <laughs> lock and key. Yeah. In fact, the churches and the buildings, community centers that we've built, half of our cost is providing security, which is mostly, you know, a, a wall. You know, they call them fences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just brick or concrete block walls. And they're just amazed as to how open we are here. He says, if this was Africa, we would be all you know, inundated because there's still the Christian Judeo Judeo Christian ethic here where people are decent with one another. Yeah. You know, we know both of our neighbors and we're sad to see them go. And we, but uh that's not not so in so many places. Yeah, and you know, there's law and order here. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's real here. You know, I remember and I know you'll remember through Rotary we had the uh exchange student mm-hmm. from South America. Mm-hmm. And I remember her saying it's amazing up here you know, there's not, there's a lot of mistrust in law enforcement down in South America because mm-hmm. a lot of them are corrupt. And I remember she because I'd come to Rotary in uniform and she was at first a little hesitant. And then she warmed <laughs> up to me and, you know, she's a wonderful lady. And, you know, it may really makes you appreciate where you live, not just in this country, but in this community mm-hmm. where law enforcement for, uh, you know, fortunately for us is respected. Mm hmm. Another thing I was going to ask you about, uh, because we've kind of got stung with this. Actually, we're okay, but scams, and especially with moving here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have to make all these phone calls, get our utilities changed, and everything else. And we got scammed by employees of the utility company itself. You know, that impersonated my wife, and you know, had money diverted. And do you deal with some of those types of crimes? Oh, absolutely, or, absolutely. Tell us. The frustrating thing about a lot of them is they are perpetrated sometimes overseas, from mm-hmm. overseas, mm-hmm. sometimes from the West Coast. And it really makes a department that's our size with limited resources, it makes it hard to prosecute 
Well, it makes it hard to locate them and develop a suspect, let alone prosecute. So that is what's frustrating on our end. Now, we now that being said, we have caught some of them. Um, and we're very diligent about trying, but a lot of times it's just you're chasing a ghost in the wind, so to speak. So what we've tried to do is educate people better. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, don't let yourself be a victim of crime. And, and quite frankly, with the way the scamming over the Internet and everything else has gone on over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's hard not to tell these victims, how did you let yourself become a victim of this? Some people, obviously, through no fault of their own, like your mm-hmm. situation. But if somebody calls you on the phone. And represents them as being somebody that works for your bank or works for the utility company. And they ask you, they tell you that you owe them money and to send money or somebody's going to come and take them to jail. That's a giant (laughs) red flag right there. We got that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The IRS isn't going to call you and say, pay us or we're going to take you to jail. You know, they're going to send you correspondence in the mail and stuff like that. So never the, the moral of the story. And I feel like I've said it a million times is never give your personal information out over the phone. Nothing. No date mm-hmm. of birth. No social security number. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, don't pay anybody anything over the phone. If they want it bad enough, they'll either come to your door and prove who they are. Or they'll send you stuff through the mail, and you'll it'll you know you'll you'll realize mm-hmm. it's legit. And unfortunately, it's the older people that get preyed on. The more gullible people. And I tell you, it's like whack a mole. You take out one group. And the next group comes along with an even more elaborate and convincing mm-hmm. scam. And some of these, I admit, they're they're easy to fall for. Easy to fall for. But the bottom line is you don't give this information out over the phone. You'll always be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you get really st- stung with uh, offers and, and things. Yeah. And then you look back on your credit card, had had a payment go out for three three months, called and had to take it out. Mm-hmm. But I thought, how many people just don't know that they're having money just with they don't they don't i'll tell you and i'm not here to advocate any you know commercial company or anything but there are there are uh and there's places out there companies out there and just to throw out an example like lifelock where you can pay a little bit of money every month and you know your identity is under lock and key and those things are great but i'll tell you and this is free and this is affordable the best thing i ever did and i did it for our family is i applied for an experian account and it's free Mm-hmm. Now, it's very limited what you can do with it, but the bottom line is you can get on it any time of the day, any time of the week, month, and you can look at your profile, your mm-hmm. social security number, and you can tell any debt that's uh, that's accumulated under your name. And you'll recognize most of it's credit card, a mm-hmm. bank loan, a home loan, a mortgage, an auto loan. But you can look get on that and you can tell if somebody's opened up a credit card in your name or a line of credit. You know, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that happened to my wife during COVID. Somebody applied mm-hmm. for a small business loan for $30,000 in her name. <laughs> and we were able to work through it. But, you know, having that Experian account, being able to check your credit, is a pretty, mm-hmm. big, pretty big advantage. Well, that's what happened here. We actually went to the to the bank and we wanted to do LifeLock. Mm-hmm. But the bank, Fifth Third, had offered something very, very similar, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to that. I'm not sure if we've signed up for it yet. But anyway, we do want something like that. But I'm glad that you shared the story about the freebie. Yeah, yeah uh, there are a lot of resources out there. And like I said, I don't want to pay for something if I don't have to either. And, <laughs> and that experience, you know, just uh-huh. an example. You mentioned, I will touch base on my goal to have the police department represent the demographic it serves mm-hmm. in trying to recruit minorities and ladies. Uh, can you please tell us more about this? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Vic. Yeah. I was hoping you'd touch on that. So when I was appointed chief in March, you know, one of the immediate tasks that I was given and is getting our ranks back up. And in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of retirements. 
Um, we're just hitting that generational gap where we've got a lot of people that can retire and collect their pension and go work elsewhere. And, you know, you're crazy not to do that. So we've had a lot of sergeants retire. And the way our department works that, you know, when a sergeant retires, an investigator usually gets promoted to sergeant and a patrolman gets promoted to investigator. And then we have to replace that patrolman. So we're trying to get our ranks back up. We're hiring a lot right now. And one of my goals, and it's tough because law enforcement right now is not a popular profession. It's really hard to get people to apply. You know, in years past, we'd go to a police academy to recruit and there'd be 30, you know, uh, academy cadets. Mm -hmm. Now there's maybe five or six. Wow. And it's really hard. And what we found is that police departments are scavenging from each other. Um, And we don't want to do that. Fortunately, Union Township is a great place to work. The pay and the benefits are are very good. So, you know, I, I like to think we get the best of the best. But- when I'm recruiting and when I'm hiring, one of the things that's in the forefront of my mind is is having a police department that represents the demographic that we serve. And out in Claremont County, you know, it's it's very it's very white Caucasian, obviously. Um, but here's the thing, and this is you know what I what I told what I t- tell our trustees when I was interviewing for the position: the people that we serve are primarily white Caucasian, but the people that we are out there dealing with you know, are really a reflection of all of society, whether it's African-American, whether it's Hispanic, mm-hmm. whether it's white Caucasian, uh, whether it's Russo-Russian, you know, or, 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 or Oriental, you know. So I would like to have officers from a wide variety, from across all, you know, ethnicities and, and races. And it's easy to say that, but it's hard, you know, I can't make people, I can't make African-Americans, I can't make women, you know, because we want to have women and men too. I can't make them come apply here, but I can try to recruit them. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to create a grassroots effort, maybe at the high school level. We have school resource officers that work in the school to maybe identify kids of color or females or kids of, of other ethnicities. And hey, do you have a desire to be a police officer? Do, do they look like somebody that's training that way that would make a good police officer? Maybe starting to do a little grassroots recruiting and developing mm-hmm. because our resource officers really have a... Tr- have the ability to have a tremendous impact on the youth. And if a youth can look at a resource officer and say, hey, I want to be a police officer. And, you know, maybe we can locate that African-American or that Hispanic male or female or that woman that wants to be a police officer, then I'd like to do that. I'd like to tap into that and develop that because when we're out in the public and we're dealing with an African-American or a Hispanic or a woman, I want there to be officers that they can relate to, mm-hmm. you know, not just the white male. And I, I'm not trying to get racial about this. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have officers that can reach across all borders and boundaries mm-hmm. and, and, and empathize and identify, identify with these people that we're dealing with. I think that's important in law enforcement. I really do. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I know that I've been, <clears throat> called in because of my Russian language sometimes to translate <laughs> and I feel useful I feel useful you know in, in that in, in that way uh, actually it was for a rotary club where I worked for judges that came from Russia and I we actually you know was, I never <laughs> thought about that I we have to call you next time we're dealing with somebody that speaks Russian well if I'm here hopefully I'm, if you're here <laughs> but I would be very very glad to help out with that way it would be priceless for us you know, just to have one officer that speaks Spanish because mm-hmm. we have such a heavy Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a, we were dealing with some people that were involved in a crime. They were Hispanic. And we had a female from the uh, Evendale Police Department mm-hmm. who was on duty, came out, spoke very good Spanish, very, very fluent Spanish. 
And man, it was such, it was so helpful, mm-hmm. you know, cause we have to use language line, which is a phone service and it's mm-hmm. just hard to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned about women. Do you have any women police officers? We do. We have uh, three right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually inter- we're actually interviewing a female right now who who looks very favorable. We'll mm-hmm. see if she can get through, jump through the background hoops and all that stuff. But um, w- women are definitely you know a population that we're trying to target more. Um, just not a, not a lot of women in law enforcement, and women bring so many. Uh, they bring so many uh, abilities sometimes that on a greater level than men possess, mm-hmm. like that ability to communicate, that motherly touch, that mm-hmm. ability to get people to open up, to empathize. Mm-hmm. And and you can't understate how valuable that is out on the road. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've told you before, Vic, I, I feel very strongly, and this is based on 25 years of experience in law enforcement, the best weapon that we have, the best tool in our tool belt is our voice, our our ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I know that my ability to communicate, you said I'm a talker and I am Mm -hmm. a talker. I know my ability to communicate has gotten me out of a lot of jams (laughs) where maybe I had to use force on somebody if I Uh wasn't able to talk them down. Uh And we tell people when we interview them, this is my big line, my big tagline. I want somebody that's going to get to a call and that's going to throw water on the fire, not gas. Mm -hmm. I want somebody that can come in at level three. And if they have to go to level 10, in other words, if you have to get physical with somebody, you know, you have to, I'll back you hundred percent, but I don't want you to push that other Mm -hmm. person to get up to 10, Mm -hmm. come in at a three and and try to keep them, you know, at Mm -hmm. three. So, you know, the ability to communicate and empathize is a very valuable tool. And Mm -hmm. a lot of ladies have that, that capability. Certainly. Well, just the fact that she's a lady, you know, yeah. you think of somebody yeah. ten, tender. And, and we have, I tell you right now, we have three of the best. It mm-hmm. was National Women's Law Enforcement Day or something. There's a day for everything anymore. You know, I think it's <laughs> Sun's Day the other day. But we had a National Women's Law Enforcement Day. And we did some stuff on our social media account uh, where we threw, you know, our, our ladies in law enforcement up there. And I tell you what, we have a sergeant, two officers. I wouldn't trade them for anything. They, mm-hmm. are, they are wonderful police officers. Well, that's that's great. Yep. Anthony, is there anything else that you would like to tell us today? No, I think just uh, the, the police department is working. Um, we're working to, to get our numbers back up. We're, we're trying to be more proactive. We're very reactive. Obviously, 50,000 calls for service a year is what we average. Um, so we're trying to be more proactive. A big goal of mine, I've always been re- a, a really big public relations guy, and we have a lot of public relations programs mm-hmm. that, that the, the police department's developed over the last 20 years, and we're trying to add even more. So uh, we're trying to, to be all things to all people, so mm-hmm. to speak. And we're not just out there enforcing the law. We're out there trying to educate the public and, 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 and be able to provide different programs to help people, uh, to help educate them on different varieties of topics, our Citizen Police Academy, our Women's Self-Defense, our Child Gun Safety are all big things. So look down the road for more programs uh, that, to, that hopefully mm-hmm. we're able to offer our residents. Well, we're just very pleased pleased to see that. And you have given law enforcement, just the words themselves that could be intimidating. You've given them a different face to citizens. There's a respect with a kindness and with a service. Pride, progress, and professionalism. That you'll see that written at the police department. That's our motto. And pride, pride, progress, and professionalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, you know, again, I tell we've been doing a lot of hiring lately, and I tell people when we hire them on their first day, I tell them the patch that you wear on your shoulder. You know, you represent 
me, you represent mm-hmm. our command staff and you represent our police department mm-hmm. and, you know, treat people the way you would want to be treated. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't be that way with everybody. Sometimes they dictate the mood, your mood and, and, and whether unfortunately we have to use force to arrest people, but always treat people the way you would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's worked out well for me for 25 years. Well, it's just been, thank you. Thank you so much for for doing the podcast with us today. This has just been wonderful to have you stop by. I know that you live a few blocks away. <laughs> we appreciate your stopping by on the way to work, I'm sure. I always enjoy it, Vic, and we're okay. gonna miss you. Well, and we're gonna miss you too, but I'll, I'll be back through this area and one of the top stops will be club and give a call to people I know. Excellent. So thank you very much. You're welcome, thank you. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. So we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.